0: I have a confession to make about this show. Growing up, I never learned how to ride a bicycle. I grew up on a very steep hill, and I was too afraid of trying and falling and hurting myself that I never learned. Even as I got into my teenage years and later my adult years, I thought, what's the point of trying to learn to ride a bike? And in spite of my own fears and doubts, we made sure that our daughter would learn to do so. For some, learning to ride a bike is like a rite of passage. It's a gateway to a world of freedom and independence to explore. But for others, bicycles are out of reach. Instead of being a gateway, it's a gate that's locked. Women and people of color have historically been excluded from cycling. But members of the cycling community are working now to change the image of who a cyclist can be. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we look at representation in cycling. Later in the show, we'll learn about how bicycles provided women with an independence that many men fought against. We'll also hear from a cyclist who's training for next year's Paralympic Games. But first, Lita Highsmith. She's a league cycling coach with the League of American Bicyclists. She's the first Black woman to be a cycling coach in the history of that organization. Lita, welcome to Disrupted.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You have made some tremendous accomplishments in the world of cycling. But before we get to that latest achievement, I want to actually go back to when you first learned how to ride a bike. What was that experience like for you and how did it perhaps set you in this lifetime interest in cycling?
1: I was probably seven, eight years old when I learned how to ride a bike and my siblings and I each got a bicycle with trainer wheels on it. And I watched my sister and brother go through their trials and tribulations and then I got on my bike and started riding. So the training wheels came off almost immediately. I, I was grown at that point. I could do things that big people could do, adults could do. So now I was free.
0: I hear that sense of freedom, that ability for you to explore on your own terms within bounds, of course, but also having the ability to go to places to experience them and decide what you wanted to do and where you wanted to be. And I wonder if for you now is riding that same sense of freedom. What is the experience of cycling like for you today?
1: So, yes, it is that same sense of freedom, expanded. It's exploration. It's visiting. It's thinking. It's me time. It's fitness time. So cycling that went from exploring the neighborhood or visiting my neighborhood friends has grown to be something that is more than that. It's, It's exploring a community.
0: So this freedom that you have to now ride, to think through things that you may be mulling over or just decide how you want to exercise and care for your body and your mind is what I hear, that connection, uh, the sort of total approach to riding. But you aren't someone who just does this recreationally because you love it or you enjoy it. You have now taken it to the next level of this remarkable achievement of being uh, named or earning. The distinction of being a league cycling coach for the League of American Bicyclists. Tell our listeners what is that league and what is your role within the league?
1: Okay, the League of American Bicyclists is a member is a member organization. Uh, We're about two hundred thousand strong now. It wasn't always an inclusive organization, and we can talk about that if you'd like a little bit later. But it's primarily education advocacy through some of their various programs my role right now um, with American uh, League of American Bicyclists is, is I'm a league cycling coach I started out as a league cycling instructor and I realized that the more I taught bicycling education classes the more there was for me to learn and grow and the more there was a need for cycling instructors of color and then when I explored the coaching piece of um, working within the league, I realized there were no women, um, African-American women. There were women coaches, yes, but not African-American coaches that were women. And And I had to go forward with that.
0: I want to go back to something that you mentioned in the beginning of your answer to that question, which is that the League of American Bicyclists wasn't always inclusive. Talk to us a little bit about that history of it not being inclusive and how it may have encouraged or inspired you to achieve the things you're doing today.
1: Okay. Well, the League was founded in 1880 as the League of American Wheelmen. And uh, the women were allowed to join. And at that point, there was not a color barrier to membership of the League. However, there were nuances depending upon if you were in the northern states or the southern states. Around 1894, um, the uh, board chair of the League at that time worked very hard and campaigned and were was successful in putting a color ban on the League of American Cyclists. So existing members could still remain. For example, Kitty Knox, as a woman, an African-American woman, she was allowed to remain in the League. um, Because the League sanctioned races, African-Americans and people of color were allowed to race, but they were not allowed to join the League. The League went through phases. It pretty much waned off in the um, turn of the century, revived again in the 1930s, died off again a little bit. But 1999, the board chair at the time realized that formally the bylaws were not changed, the constitution of the league was not changed to remove the color barrier. So 1999, he made it his mission and the board formally voted to remove that ban. So fast forward, um, the league is still at that point, and perhaps still now, it's slowly changing, uh, white, um, white males was, is the predominant. However, the league is acknowledging that the more people that ride, the safer we all are, the healthier we all are, the more connected a community we all are. So equity and inclusion becomes a big part of the league. And I want to be a part of that movement. I want to be there to be the face of, yes, cyclists in 2023 can look like me, can be built like me, and and have the same enjoyment as any other cyclist.
0: When I hear the history of that league it sounds so similar to the history of other sports or other leagues and associations connected to recreation and leisure. But this is a history, Lita, that I don't think most people are aware of. And you said you want to be a part of that. You want to be a part of that change. You are not just a part of it. You are leading much of that change. You now hold the distinction of being the first black woman cycling coach within the league. What is that achievement? The fact that it's happening now, what does that achievement mean
1: for you? Well, it's bittersweet. It's a shame that it's happening now in 2023. However, I am delighted to be the first. I I it makes a very powerful statement. I'll I'll share a story of why it's so important to you you and I teach bicycling education classes and waiting for a class to begin I watched the students assemble and they were all African American women who came to this class great so when it came time for the class I announced that I was their instructor and I would be leading them through the the class and introduced myself and one of the students said oh my goodness you look like me and I realized then and there the messenger is as important as the message. And at that point, I said, I am becoming a coach. And that started the journey. I am so glad I did because when I work with students and children, especially children of color, it's just empowering because they they see what they can become. When I work with children of color, especially those with braided and elaborate hairstyle, I'm able to empathize with them and help them fit their helmets correctly, which many white instructors simply don't know. It's not a criticism. One doesn't know what they don't know. But from my perspective, I can be very empathetic with those students and connect with them.
0: The level of awareness that you have. So simple things that many people may take for granted, which is the fitting of a helmet. If you have a hair or you your hair is covered because of your religious traditions, having that helmet fit is so critical for safety, but it's also critical for representation and affirmation, so much of your life and your work, Lita, has focused on giving that sense of dignity and strength to communities, to whether it's immigrant communities, communities of color, just people more broadly. How does this fit into your overall purpose in life of that ability to say, I have this opportunity, let me make the most of it, not just for yourself, but for others who may be
1: looking to you or be inspired by you. I realize I am richly blessed and those of us who are richly blessed or any of us should give back and and reach out and touch someone and make someone's life better I truly believe that and it could be something as simple as encouragement yes you can you can do this or yes you should try this or a suggestion or an offer of assistance or help. So I think me as a being, my my purpose is to help others be better. So I think it's very important um, for me in the in the realm of cycling to just share the love and share the joy and help share the access and be creative to that access for some the trail seems so far away or riding seems so far away when actually you can do that in your neighborhood which brings us to infrastructure and you know what is available in inner city versus you know um suburban environments urban environments etc so access and awareness is is important as well
0: I read a story about a new cycling club for students at Clinton Avenue School in New Haven. Yes, And it was beautiful to see all of these young faces filled with joy and excitement and wonder, especially at a time where too often I think young people are not allowed. To experience that joy. And so to see their faces beside their coaches and their teachers who shared this equal excitement and together they were going out into New Haven to ride and to support one another. And I thought about you and the work that you're doing, the importance of cycling as a way of creating access for people and opportunity. And then it led to this to me, the the natural next question, which is for you, as someone who is a coach who has a love for the, the capacity and potential of this, what do you see as the future of cycling and, and the kind of changes that you'd like to see coming forward?
1: I see a future of more people cycling. And that, that is my hope. I would like to see cycling taught in the schools. Um, driver education manuals for the states. If you look at our driver education manuals, a paragraph, maybe two, is dedicated to cycling. Why can't there be a, more than a paragraph or two about cycling? Um, vulnerable user laws, that needs to change. Um, awareness and community yielding, uh, you know, just the kindness of cycling, just needs to be taught. The, the, the Clinton Avenue project is amazing. I rode with them last year and uh, it, those 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 young adults were absolutely phenomenal and amazing. And those are few fu- our future drivers, right? And those are our future um, community leaders awareness that what cycling did for them, As adults, they will make sure that that continues and that legacy grows. And that's the motion or the movement I want to be part of. I think that's very important that we're setting the example for these potential um, future leaders.
0: You've named a number of policy changes that could come forth to promote cycling, but really to promote health, safety, and community connection. And one thing that I know about you is that if there is a need, you will certainly respond to it and be a part of leading that. Lita Highsmith is a league cycling coach with the League of American Bicyclists. Thank you so much for sharing with us today.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure.
0: That was Lita Highsmith, League Cycling Coach with the League of American Bicyclists. Coming up, we'll learn why suffragist Susan B. Anthony thought the bicycle had done more to emancipate women than any other thing in the world. We'll also hear more about bicycle racer Kitty Knox. And later, an elite paracyclist talks about facing self-doubt. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're looking at some of the ways that cycling has historically excluded certain groups. Hannah Ross is author of Revolutions, How Women Changed the World on Two Wheels. And if you hear any noises in the background, it's because Hannah was answering my questions while looking after her beautiful baby. I asked Hannah about some of the earlier iterations of the bicycle and what cycling was like for women back then.
2: So the first bicycle, as we would recognize it today, um, was um came onto the market around the 1870s. Various iterations of bicycle type machines had been in production for many decades previous to this. Um, but what made this um so unique and eventually so popular is that it had um filled tires pneumatic tires which made a big difference because previous bicycles did not have this made them very uncomfortable um and it had a pedal and chain system as we'd recognize it today the bicycle that had been most popular prior to this um was called high wheel which um many listeners may um uh, be able to visualize it had an extremely enormous big wheel and a very little rear wheel they seem very peculiar to us now but were extremely popular and also quite dangerous as you can imagine so the bicycle that came after this they called it the safety bicycle almost as a as an as a sort of um response to the dangers inherent in in the high wheel um and one of the things that um, about the high wheel, it was dangerous. But um, you can probably imagine that if you, as women at this time, were meant to do, they were meant to be wearing long skirts. That was sort of the fashion for women um, at this time: great big long skirts to the floor, petticoat. Not the kind of outfit that you would you would get on a a very high or <laughs> precarious wheel. But the safety bicycle most for many women that that really opened up the opportunity to ride a bicycle which they hadn't really had before um so and it took a while um for many women to come to the bicycle so I'd, I'd say it was until really until the 1890s um for nearly two decades on but that was when um it was it So was, the bicycle was at its peak and women were were sort of, I would say, representing around 30% of cyclists at this time, which was quite a lot given the fact that, as I said, women's fashions were very um, prohibitive to any exercise of any sort and the kind of um, social mores of the day, you know, were very restrictive on women's movement in general, based um, kind of socially. Um, and politically and economically um, but bicycle manufacturers realised quite early on that women could make up quite a large percentage of the market and so they started marketing the safety bicycle and and typed the safety bicycle with a drop bar so that they could step over easily chain guards so their skirts didn't get caught up in in the chain um, so that they were accessible Women, um, and this would have been at this time, as I said, women's movements were, were really quite restricted. Um, they, there was no kind of mass sport really that women were playing. Um, some sort of, um, some women would have been able to ride horses, side saddles, uh, upper class women may have taken part in the sort of genteel, what were then genteel sports of tennis or croquet, but um, this was a mass, the first, really the first kind of mass leisure sport that women pick up in in great numbers. Um, and you can sort of see why when um, life as a woman was so restricted that the bicycle offered this kind of ability to sort of get on and cycle somewhere you want to go. You've mentioned
0: a number of things, the the physical structure and construction of the bicycle, which as you said, was dangerous uh, for people in general, but particularly for women, given the very socially conservative norms about women's dress and public presentation. So there's that aspect of the construction of the bicycle not being compatible with how women were told to conform at the time. There also were these restrictions on women's movement and ability more broadly. And when you mention that this innovation really came about in the 1890s, it's a reminder of what women were dealing with globally, of a fight to even be seen as an autonomous human with rights, with uh, opportunities and options and choices. And so in your book, and I think this is really important for that context, you mentioned, you quote Susan B. Anthony, the very famous suffragist and really international women's leader, who said, the bicycle has done more to emancipate women than any one thing in the world. That was shocking and surprising when I read it. And I thought, that's really an inflated way of seeing it. But hearing your context about these broader political, economic, and social restrictions gives a different weight to that quote. What did Susan B. Anthony mean that the bicycle has done more to emancipate women?
2: I suppose the ironic thing about this quote is that Susan B. Anthony never actually got to ride a bicycle. (laughs) Um, she was, um, early in kind of early advanced years when, um, bicycle became popular, but even not being able to ride, a, actually get on a bicycle, she really identified with the fact that, um, this was a freedom machine, as she called it, um, because it represented this idea of, just, of as, as, as you say, this autonomy, um, which was really an extremely, um, novel concept for, that when it came to most women's lives at this time, of course, there were many women who um, sort of went against this idea that um, women's place was in the home. This is this is how it was seen: that women's place was domestic. It was men that lived in public spaces and occupied public spaces and public life, and women should remain indoors. And so, the bicycle is complete opposite of that. Um, it offers this freedom of movement and your own and your own energy um, and that was really revolutionary and the thing about the bicycle and when it appeared that there's a certain uh, a kind of history that what Susan Anthony is saying the context is that, that around this time there was a great upsurge in women's uh, political movement so that's movements to get the vote where um, Almost nowhere women had the vote at this time, and just physical freedoms. There were women who were campaigning for change in women's dress to rationalize women's dress for women to be able to wear uh, trousers and all this. I mean, it's so hard to imagine now that even just a woman wearing trousers would have been absolutely shocking, like newspaper worthy shocking almost. Um, the, the, the so these two events bicycle and this kind of real upsurge in the idea of women becoming more autonomous and independent they kind of they are sort of interconnected in a way um so it was almost as if susan b anthony the the bicycle kind of symbolized that struggle um so it sort of it came along and it sort of it represented the idea of what what women should be able to do. Listening to you think
0: about that and that connection, what's so key during that time was the sense of paternalism, that we are protecting women from harm. We don't want women to vote because it's a dirty enterprise of politics and we want to preserve that purity. We don't want women to wear trousers because they may be approached differently or not respected. And one of the other ways that that paternalism shows up, Hannah, is all of the medical misconceptions about the impact on women's bodies, the impact potentially on their reproductive abilities. Really, from the entirety of a woman's body, the idea was cycling, being on a bicycle will be dangerous to their health and well-being. And so we need to protect women from, you know, that kind of harm. Can you give our listeners an example of two of you know those medical harms that dominated the discussion about whether women should be on a bicycle?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is um, a really pre- sort of key part of the campaign against stopping women riding bicycles. So yeah, you talk about journalism, but I would. Yeah, I would go to father and further and just say it's um it's the patriarchy that it was it's all about repressing women and it's about keeping women um the idea of like not wearing trousers, and so not being like men, being baby makers essentially. And the baby makers thing really comes into the kind of anti-cycling argument. Um so what was I think a lot of people found particularly shocking was that women sat astride a bicycle so they think about this time women were riding horses, but they were riding side saddle. This idea of just sitting on a bicycle. So there were some doctors who then went so far as to say, just sitting on a bicycle could cause you to become infertile. Um, that was that was um, a, a really sort of famous argument, a key argument at the time. Obviously, completely boundless um, in any way whatsoever um, and then some of them felt that um, a lot of people felt that sitting on on a bicycle seat was overtly sexual again it's just this idea of controlling women's bodies keep them in their place to keep women to keep this, this order that suited men um, that it was men who um, went out into the world and it was women who stayed at home having having babies and to tell them that doing something like riding a bicycle would prevent them from doing it to make them almost outsiders. But, and one of the, the sort of themes that comes up again and again is this idea that what men were scared of or what they thought they were scared of was the idea of women becoming men, women becoming more like men then therefore taking the power from them. Um, So this idea is that if you start wearing what what was seen then as men's clothes, um, that you would become like a man, um, which is, yeah, very extraordinary. And so there were, in some countries, they even went as far as um, to uh, make it illegal. In France, it was illegal for women to wear trousers, um, although... When cycling became popular, they actually amended the law to say that women could wear trousers if they were holding the reins of a horse or on a bicycle, um, which just shows how popular cycling eventually became and how even the French government recognised that it was probably safer to cycle in a pair of trousers than a great big long skirt. But there were other doctors at this time who really supported women um, cycling and taking exercise because they saw, quite rightly, Physical exercise had huge benefits for women's health. I read through um lots of um cycling magazines from the time in 1890s, and women would write in saying how their lives were absolutely transformed when they took up cycling, how they'd felt continually ill. Um, and then once they'd taken up cycling and physical activity, they they were just full of health and happiness. Um, which sounds a bit simplistic, but But I'm sure it would have had a a really great benefit.
0: As you're talking about the different ways of controlling women's bodies, controlling women's access, the idea of, you know, who is entitled to wellness who's entitled to physical activity for their mental wellness and their physical well-being, we see that come up in many different ways. And I'm thinking in particular about women of color who are sort of, you know, moved out of that idea of womenhood, of femininity, and the need to be protected. And you talk in your book that for many women of color— Being on the bicycle was an act of defiance. It was a small way of affirming the agency that they had in a world, in a country, in a community that often denied us. Why was being on a bicycle an act of defiance for those women?
2: There's a famous um, example um, that I use in the book um, that's quite well known of a cyclist called Kitty Knox, who was um, an African-American living in Boston, Massachusetts, and she um belonged to what was called the League of American Wheelmen, which at the time was the um biggest cycling organization in America. Um and and the Tinox um became um quite well known, um, but partly sort of in in some ways for the wrong reasons, is that she she belonged to the League of American Wheelmen and sections of the League of American Women in the Southern States um, wanted to. So this is in the early days of cycling in the early 1890s, um, they wanted to ban anyone non-white from joining the being becoming a member of the organization. They actually they did actually succeed in this, um, but Initially, what they didn't ban was existing members. And when um, the League of American Women had a annual meetup, Kitty Knox went, uh, of course, she went, she was a member. Um, it caused a, quite a sensation, um, which was actually made out of magazines, international newspapers, um, that this African American woman and Kitty also she um, also wore what was called rational dress, which was um, not skirt; it was um, bloomers, which were sort of trousers which ended just below the knee. And um, she wore clothing adapted cycling, um, and she, from all accounts, seemed to be quite into racing on her bike. Again, something that was quite shocking to people. Um, but most of all, as I said, it, it was the fact that she was, um, an African American woman. And, you know, obviously now it, it's really quite, um, horrifying to read these reports, but she stayed the course. She defied, um, everyone She knew that she had a right to be there. Cycling did actually become quite a, um, Upper class and peel activity for women as well at this time. So there are kind of, when you, when you look through the, um, magazines at this time, there were sort of reports of, you know, the women from New York society taking on uh, taking on their bicycles, riding around Central Park and up Fifth Avenue at the um, League of American Women eventually ended up, um, banning any people of color joining the organization um, so they, they became more extreme as as we went on
0: having read the book and hearing you talk about these stories and these experiences and there are so many of those stories in the book and in, in the different ways that women defined their path stayed the course as you said but also the obstacles that they encountered along the way if I'm honest with you, I will never be able to look at a bicycle again as just sort of this simple tool for exercise or transportation. There are so many layers and stories that are connected to that, that really you have now woven a story that stretches across generations and stretches across place. And so when I want to ask you this last question that may seem a little personal, but you are a mom. You are a cyclist. You have written this amazing book that I think challenges all of us to think about the things we take for granted, but also how the choices we make today can create a better path in the future and what we want to pass on. What is it that you want readers to take away after they read this book and they think about their own sense of, of connection and, and purpose? What is it that you want readers to take away?
2: I don't know. That there's one, o- one answer to that, in a way, um, because I suppose I want, in a sense of understanding the history of this, it's it's that riding a bike for women has always been political. I think that's the thing that I think is most resounding throughout the book, and that's not just women of the 1890s. It's women throughout history. It's women even today. You know, people have said that men have always just being able to just get on a bicycle without thinking but for women it's it has always been a political issue um and the fact as I said that it remains so um and it's you know and it's not I'm not just talking about places like Afghanistan where it's completely banned for women's cycle or Iran or you know Saudi Arabia where it's very Difficult for women women's ride bikes um it's much more like it was um a century or so ago in in western countries but um it's yeah. it's still political there's still women still have to think about you know safety many women feel that they are um a particular they you know they get sort of um uh, particular unwanted attention just for riding a bicycle or whether it's in the professional sport that women aren't paid enough they're not given enough opportunities that there's a disparity between the men's racing the women's racing it's sort of across the whole of cycling and cycling is um it's sometimes quite difficult to talk about um not difficult but it's it's because it encompasses so many different things It's a sport. It's a leisure activity, but also it's a, it's a utilitarian object. It's, it's something you use to get around your public transportation for many people. Um, and it's sometimes it's a, it's an absolute lifeline for people. It means them being able to get to school, get to work when they don't have other forms of, um, or access to other forms of transport. So, um, yeah, it's the fact that it still remains a very political object. Um, and access and inclusion are still, um, very much issues, but also, um, on the more positive side, um, one of the things that I was particularly passionate about, passionate about was just inspiring um, as well as t- talking about the negative aspects of the history, how amazing and how inspiring so many people have been in the history of cycling and that they've just, you know, continued to cycle in the face of um, prejudice and discrimination um, and really done extraordinary things. And for me now in um, a world that's actually on fire, <laughs> it's common that cycling is one of the things that we can do um, in our way to um, you know try and um, contribute less to uh, our climate footprint.
0: This is definitely a story of purpose of resilience and also possibility. Hannah Ross is author of revolutions How Women Change the World on two Wheels Hannah thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much and great talking to you
0: Coming up we'll talk to a paracyclist who just competed in a world championship competition in Scotland. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking to people who expand our ideas of who can be a cyclist. Katie Walker is paracyclist for Team USA. When I spoke to her, she was in Scotland for the 2023 UCI Cycling World Championships. She competed in the 500-meter time trial and the Team Sprint. Katie competes in track cycling. It's an indoor cycling competition where athletes bike on an oval-shaped surface with a steep incline. Katie was born in Taiwan with partial loss of her left arm. She was adopted at the age of two and moved to Ohio. asked her about growing up in the Buckeye State and how she discovered her love of athletics.
3: Growing up in Ohio, I uh, I started actually sports at a very very young age, and uh, surprisingly it was a, I grew up in a predominantly uh, Caucasian uh, community, um, and so I I was very different looking in my community, uh, but surprisingly I grew up just I guess quote unquote normal. <laughs> uh, so yeah I I played a lot of sports you know I got good grades involved in my community. Uh, so yeah, it's I think sports was just integral and, and my upbringing and forming me as a person. And yeah, I just I can't really thank sports enough for for that. Really, it just gave me confidence as well. So you said you had a pretty
0: normal, regular upbringing there in Ohio. You know, did that carry through for you into adulthood, where? You know you were able to do what you wanted to do to pursue your interests with confidence because of athletics, or did you encounter any challenges along the way?
3: Oh yeah no i I definitely encountered some challenges and then actually um uh, before moving, I moved down to San Diego right after graduating college. But my freshman year in college um i was I was recruited to play softball, and I think that's where my mindset shifted from having that confidence um to being actually very insecure and feeling unaccepted um and it was all it was just as a mindset shift um surrounding my disability and feeling like people wouldn't accept me because of it and yeah the my my experience my freshman year playing softball it was yes pretty pretty terrible and it wasn't because um of the other people um, on my team, I felt like again I was being excluded. I felt all the negative emotions, but later on I realized it was just it was me and my my insecurity, and um, it just it just it kind of put off people. I think
0: we hear a lot now from young people who are very vocal about the challenges that they're navigating, that sense of self-doubt or how they sort of go inward and close themselves off because they're trying to figure out, trying to figure out the next day and how they can just be themselves. What does it mean for you to be in this position now where young people look to you as a role model? They look to you to say, if she could do that, I could do it too. What does that mean for you now?
3: It it really means so much. Uh, just growing up, I didn't really have role models who look like me, uh, and so me being able to be that for somebody else that's that's exactly why I decided and I decided to start, um, ParaSport, is so I could be a role model for, for those people, uh, with disabilities and and even with for people who you know don't have disabilities.
0: So let's talk about. What you're doing now, you talked about softball in college, but you came into cycling fairly recently, given how many people see this as a sport they've done their whole lives and you've excelled at it. Talk to us about that move from softball into cycling. uh, And what is it about cycling that makes you say, this is it for me?
3: You know, transitioning from softball, I actually also did para track and field back in 2013 and then into cycling. Uh, It's been really, it's been an accelerated path for me. And um, it's been a, a journey of a lot of setbacks, a lot of failures, but also a lot of successes.
0: What is it about cycling in particular that drives you, that connects you to that kind of passion and energy that you have for athletics?
3: For my event, I'm a I'm more of a sprinter, and so it's kind of just that go 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 that intensity that it's just it, going back to sport and just being in that present moment and just really that adrenaline that is just exciting and it's it's fun uh, exhilarating you know so it's all the things.
0: Now, I'm sure that our listeners can hear it in your voice, but I see it on your face, how you responded. You really lit up when you talked about that connection and that adrenaline and that passion. We are recording this interview on August 7th, and you are currently in Scotland competing, as I said, in the Cycling World Championships. And this is, I believe, your second time competing in the World Championships. What's it like? What's the experience of competing at that level?
3: So again, I, the only uh, word I can use is exhilarating. Um, and we are also, this is also a unique experience for us because we're competing in super worlds. And so what that means is there's every cycling discipline is here together and uh, track side, uh, we are competing with the able body elites as well. And so that's different from us or uh, from, from last year. And so it just makes it that much more exciting to have so many more um, just people supporting and so many more athletes here competing.
0: What is it that you want people to know, to understand or to respect about athletes who are competing with disabilities? And again, I'm thinking of the many young people who are figuring out their way and maybe drawing inspiration from that. What should we know?
3: I think people should know that... We, uh, p- just people with disabilities, and and I, I guess specifically in the para community, competing and training is that we train just as hard. Uh, we are just as committed. We make just as many sacrifices um, as any other person, you know, training to be an Olympian or an elite athlete. Um, and I, I think also, just the added component of having to adapt in those adaptations that we have to make as a as a para athlete. Um, it's it's again, it's challenging, but it's it's just so rewarding at the end of the day.
0: That sense of adaptability, that need to adapt is really a life lesson, not just for athletics and competition, but for so many aspects of our lives. I'm curious. You know, what you're seeing is you are competing with athletes from other countries. You know, do you think about those differences in the United States versus on a more global stage? Are there things in the U.S. that we get right when it comes to supporting uh, athletes or do, are there things that you say, you know, we could really do this to strengthen what our athletes are able to accomplish?
3: I think we are definitely shifting towards uh, more accessibility, more inclusion, and I think that's just, a, a, just from just having more representation. Uh, the social media is, is huge in, in that representation. Uh, the Paralympic movement. Uh, just yeah, I, I think we're doing a lot of things right here in the United States, I think internationally as well. Um, yeah, they're doing, I think we're we're all shifting towards towards inclusion. Uh, but of course, you know, it's there's still a lot of work to be done, but we're going in the right path.
0: Speaking of the right path and that sort of move toward inclusion, we are about a year away from the Paralympic Games in Paris, which start in August of 2024. What are you thinking about as you train for that experience?
3: So, yeah, so every day is, is a training day. Every day is it's just being in and just focus, just having that mindset uh, that, you know, it's just around the corner. And yeah, just bringing it, you know, with that, the same level of of intensity day to day.
0: So as we come to a close of our time together, I want to ask you one last question. And that is, what do you think you've learned about yourself through cycling and through competition?
3: A lot. (laughs) Uh, Cycling, yeah. I mean, it's just with sport and competition, you just, you just learn, you just uh, have more character, like you just build your character you build more resilience. Uh, just acceptance um, You know, towards other people, yourself, camaraderie. There's just so many lessons I've learned through, through cycling and through sport. That was Katie
0: Walker, paracyclist for Team USA. She spoke to me from Scotland, where she was competing in the 2023 UCI Cycling World Championships. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum. Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tolarski. Special thanks to our interns, Carol Chen and Stacey Addo. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you love an episode, please remember to share it and leave us a comment. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Here's hoping it's never too late to learn.